Mark chapter 9, verses 2 to 32. This is God's word. After six days, Jesus took Peter, James and John with him and led them up on a high mountain where they were all alone. There he was transfigured before them. His clothes became dazzling white, whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them. And there appeared before them Elijah and Moses who were talking with Jesus. Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. Let us put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses and one for Elijah. He did not know what to say, they were so frightened. Then a cloud appeared and enveloped them, and a voice came from the cloud. This is my son whom I love, listen to him. Suddenly, when they looked around, they no longer saw anyone with them except Jesus. As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus gave them orders not to tell anyone what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. They kept the matter to themselves, discussing what rising from the dead meant. And they asked him, Why do the teachers of the law say that Elijah must come first? Jesus replied, To be sure, Elijah does come first and restores all things. Why then is it written that the Son of Man must suffer much and be rejected? I tell you, Elijah has come, and they have done to him everything they wished, just as it is written about him. When they came to the other disciples, they saw a large crowd around them, and the teachers of the law arguing with them. As soon as all the people saw Jesus, they were overwhelmed with wonder and ran to greet him. What are you arguing with them about, he asked. A man in the crowd answered, Teacher, I brought my son who is possessed by a spirit that has robbed him of his speech. Whenever it seizes him, it throws him to the ground. He foams at the mouth, gnashes his teeth and becomes rigid. I asked your disciples to drive out the spirit, but they could not. O unbelieving generation, Jesus replied, how long shall I stay with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring the boy to me. So they brought him. When the spirit saw Jesus, it immediately threw the boy into a convulsion. He fell, on to, fell to the ground and rolled around, foaming at the mouth. Jesus asked the boy's father, how long has he been like this? From childhood, he answered. It has often thrown him into the fire or water to kill him. But if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. If you can, Jesus said, everything is possible for him who believes. Immediately, the boy's father exclaimed, I do believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. When Jesus saw that a crowd was running to the scene, he rebuked the evil spirit. You deaf and mute spirit, he said, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. The spirit shrieked, convulsed him violently and came out. The voice looked so much like a corpse that many said, he's dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him to his feet and he stood up. After Jesus had gone indoors, he asked, his disciples asked him privately, why couldn't we drive him out? He replied, this kind can come out only by prayer. They left that place and passed through Galilee. Jesus did not want anyone to know where they were because he was teaching his disciples. He said to them, the Son of Man is going to be betrayed into the hands of men. They will kill him 
and after three days he will rise. But they did not understand what he meant and were afraid to ask him about it. Amen. May the Lord add his blessing to this reading of his word. Well, it's certainly great to be able to share God's word with you. Our passage this morning is the account of the transfiguration of our Lord, together with the healing of the demon-possessed boy. It's my prayer this morning that we will all see something of the glory of Jesus, as the three disciples did on that day up Mount Hermon. And my prayer also that we will we will understand something of his power over Satan back then and, of course, that power that's available to us today. These accounts are so important for the edification of the church that they, they appear in all three synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark and Luke, and they're so important they, they, um, they appear in all of them. Slightly different, but the same accounts. I wonder if many of you have um, been to Rome and perhaps uh, been to the Vatican Gallery. Anyone? Yes, a couple. Well, in the Vatican Gallery hangs a painting by Raphael. It's his last painting and it's considered by many, many people to be his best. It's entitled The Transfiguration. The painting is divided into three sections. I did have a picture of it and I was going to put it up there but technology beat me. (laughs) But it's in three sections. The upper part pictures Jesus in his transfigured form together with Moses on his left and Elijah on his right. The middle part we have a little mountain and there the centre section we see the three disciples Peter, James and John awakening from their sleep and they're shielding their eyes from Jesus' blinding brilliance. The bottom section of the painting is a section of a poor demon-possessed boy with a contorted face and his desperate father at his side. Surrounding the boy and his father and the crowd, the great crowd of people, are the other nine disciples. And a couple of those nine disciples are pointing up to Jesus, pointing to the brilliant transfigured Jesus, more or less saying that this is your only answer to the demon-possessed boy. Now, while I don't condone images of Christ, Raphael has magnificently captured the overwhelming contrast between the brilliant transfigured Christ and the troubled world below. Let us pray. Father God, it's by your faithfulness that you have chosen to give us your word, and we thank you for that this morning. We thank you for the passage that we're looking at, and we thank you, Lord, that we can read this and know that you are speaking to us. You speak corporately to us today, and of course you speak personally and individually to each one of us. And it's our prayer this morning, Lord, that you will open the eyes of our hearts, open our minds, help us to understand the passage and help us to to just get a glimpse of your glory and to know how this applies to our lives. 
this afternoon, tomorrow and forever. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, after Peter had confessed that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, Jesus told his disciples of his impending suffering and death. Peter spoke to him about his apparent negativity and Jesus rebuked him saying, Get behind me, Satan. You do not have the mind of the things of God, but the things of men. Then Jesus called the crowd and the disciples together and explained that all who wish to follow him will suffer as he indeed is destined to suffer. And this prediction of his rejection and death is the basis for our mountaintop experience this morning. Jesus waited six days. Then he took the more spiritual of the disciples, Peter, James and John. He took them up 9,000 feet up to the top of Mount Hermon. Whilst it doesn't say in Mark's account, it does in Luke's, that he took them up there to pray. And what a prayer meeting it was. Well, firstly, Peter, James and John couldn't stay awake. They dozed off. And Dr Luke tells us that while they were dozing, suddenly they were awakened, awakened by this most brilliant, dazzling light. They rubbed their eyes, opened them as wide as they could, and they saw the brilliant, transfigured Jesus. He was framed by thousands of stars. The dazzling light was so bright that they could hardly focus. And they probably at that time remembered the vision of God that Daniel saw. His clothing was as white as snow. What a spectacle! There was God standing before them. And as they adjusted their eyes and closed their gaping mouths, two figures appeared beside Jesus, none other than Elijah and Moses. Well, these three disciples would have known that both Moses and Elijah had both talked with God on mountaintops, on the mountaintops of Sinai and Horeb, many, many centuries earlier. They would have known that these two men were shown God's glory. Moses as the foundation of Israel's law and Elijah as Israel's restorer. They would have known Deuteronomy 18, where Moses spoke prophetically about the coming Christ. Indeed, Moses' appearance was endorsing Jesus as the one that he had promised. And Elijah, completing the summary of the Old Testament, was announcing God's kingdom and preparing the people for it. He too was endorsing Jesus as the Messiah. The disciples were spellbound. The three of them, they heard the three of them talking. Once again, this doesn't appear in Mark's account, but it does in Luke's. They were talking, speaking softly about Jesus' departure from this earth. But they were saying not only his departure, but that he was going to usher in the kingdom of God by his cruel death 
and his glorious resurrection. Well, Peter, as always, broke the silence. The text tells us he really didn't know what to say and he just blurbed out a few words. But verses 5 to 6 of Mark chapter 9 is basically tantamount to his saying, hey, there's no need anymore to go the pathway of suffering and shame to heaven. The kingdom of God is here now. We can stay with Jesus, Elijah and Moses. Let's build three sheds. But Peter was desperately wrong. And just as suddenly as the dazzling brightness appeared, a cloud enveloped them all. And from inside this cloud came a voice. This is my son whom I love. Listen to him. This is my son whom I love. Listen to him. Let's pause there. Let's all think back and remember the significance of the cloud. The cloud was the sign of God's presence in the wilderness. A cloud passed by Moses after God put him in the cleft of the rock. The same cloud filled Solomon's temple when it was being dedicated. Ezekiel saw the cloud rise between the cherubim and move to the threshold of the temple because of Israel's apostasy. And on Sinai, when God took Moses up there, we read in Exodus 24 and verse 16, when Moses went up on the mountain, the cloud covered it and the glory of the Lord settled on Mount Sinai. For six days the cloud covered the mountain and on the seventh day, the Lord called to Moses from within the cloud. Well, this day, on top of this mountain, in this cloud, we hear, this is my son whom I love. Listen to him. And just as suddenly, we read in verse 8 that the cloud disappears. And Peter James and John were left alone with Jesus. Moses and Elijah were gone. The Shekinah glory of God was gone. The voice of the Father was still. They only saw Jesus backlit by the galaxies that he had created. Why do you think... Why did Jesus take the three of them up 9,000 feet up to the top of the mountain? Why did they make this trip? What, what does it mean for us today? Well, let us remember, as I said at the outset, that Jesus had told them about his impending suffering and death and that they too would suffer when they followed him. They needed to be encouraged. They needed to stand on top of the world and see Jesus pull back the veil of suffering and show them, and of course us, what the glory of God will be like. A mini preview, if you like. They and we also need to be strengthened in our commitment to Jesus and prepared for the life of difficulty and suffering that lies ahead of us. 
and through his word and by the power of his spirit. We too can catch a glimpse of his glory. Imagine Jesus. Stop, close your eyes if you have to. Imagine him at that glorious time. For a brief moment, his veil of humanity lifted and his true essence shining brilliantly. And Jesus would have loved, would have loved seeing the faces of Peter, James and John. Mouths wide open, standing there in awe. The reflection of his glory lighting up their faces. He would have loved that. I wonder if some of you here today are old enough to um, remember the days when we were allowed to have cracker nights on Empire Day. Remember those? Anyone old enough for that? <laughs> and we used to either have them in our backyards or with us neighbours in the street or down the local park and we'd get our crackers together. We're not allowed to do that anymore, are we? But anyway, we used to do that. And we used to love doing that when we lived in Armidale with our, when we, our family and We'd go to a friend's place out in the paddocks and something and we'd have a great bonfire and all this sort of thing. We used to, we used to love that. But we enjoyed, didn't we, as the head of the household, of course, we had the charge of the crackers and we were in charge of what, what went off and when they went off. And we used to love lighting them and, and, and watching those beautiful fireworks bursting into colour, didn't we? Did we? I don't know about you, but... I'm going out on a limb here. But when we used to do it with our three little kids, the greatest joy that I had was not so much the crackers, but to see the faces of my kids shining, lit up with a kaleidoscope of colour of all the, and their mouths wide open. And the joy of just seeing them experiencing the crackers. I don't know whether you can relate to that or not. But I'm sure Jesus had that sheer joy of seeing the faces of Peter, James and John lit up by this dazzling, by his brilliance and his dazzling. Jesus would have loved it. Friends, the transfiguration marks an important stage in the revelation of Jesus as the Christ, the Son of God. Indeed, the transfiguration looks forward to the return of our Lord when he comes in the Father's glory. Here, his glory is revealed, albeit briefly. Not just through deeds, as we read through the Gospels and, and all the works that he did, but in a very, very personal way. It shows the presence, the royal presence of the kingdom of God amidst the people. And friends, it is the foretaste of what's to come. It's the assurance that we can have of the final triumph of Jesus. I don't know whether... Um, who's? Uh, do you all watch those cooking shows on television? Um, no, I don't either, Robert. No, I can't stand them. Um, but who, give, me, give me the name of a famous cook, quick. Jamie Oliver. 
you go home. <laughs> okay, Jamie Oliver. Now let me let me assume, okay, I just want to put a scenario to you. Now you live next door to Jamie Oliver, okay? Now you've lived there for a while and um, uh, Jamie comes in and knocks on the door one day and he said, um, well, Val and Barry, would you, um, would you like to come for dinner next Saturday night? Wow. Wow. What would you say? Yes, yes okay. <laughs> so you say, wow, this is exciting. You know, Jamie Oliver's hardly even spoken to us while we lived here, but he's, here he is. He's invited us for dinner. And all through that week, you know, you live next door to Jamie, you can, you, you can smell these beautiful aromas because he's doing all the preparation for Saturday night, of all the cooking, the beautiful aromas of this special food that he's cooking. And, oh, look, it's delectable. And you can't wait, can you, for Saturday night to come, to go and, and feast on this beautiful supper. That's what we have. You see, we have the beautiful aromas of Jesus. We have that. And we can't wait to go in to the supper, to the wedding supper of the Lamb. We can't wait. We get the aromas, but we haven't got the real thing. You haven't got the real thing. You can only just smell it. But you're looking forward to it, aren't you, for the dinner. And we're looking forward to the consummation of going into the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God and enjoying the royal presence. The focal point of the transfiguration is the revelation of the kingdom of God. As I said, it looks forward to the foretaste of what's coming. It looks back to the Old Testament promises and shows us so clearly that Christ, Jesus Christ, fulfills all of God's Old Testament promises. And, of course, it looks forward to, to his suffering, his cross, his glorious resurrection, his ascension to the right hand of the Heavenly Father and his return in glory. Friends, don't mistake it. Jesus is coming back in glory. And if you have repented and are trusting in him for your acceptance by God, if he is your saviour, if you have proclaimed him Lord of your life, he is coming back to gather you up. Read 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. He's coming back. Back to the mountaintop. So think about the majesty of the scene for those three disciples. Jesus in his luminous glory, talking with the two spiritual giants, one who had been dead for centuries, the other who left this earth hundreds of years ago. And Peter's confession of Christ as to who he was, we read in the earlier chapter, is graphically confirmed by these two representatives of the old covenant. Jesus is the fulfilment of everything that the law pointed to. Have you got a glimpse of Jesus this morning? Have you seen something of what Peter, James and John saw? I know not visibly, but in your heart. Well, John and Peter actually recounted this glorious occasion. John in his uh, gospel, and I read from the introduction of his gospel, John chapter 1 and verse 14. And John said, the word became flesh 
Jesus, became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. We have seen his glory. And Peter, in his second letter, chapter 1 and verse 16, we did not follow cleverly invented stories when we told you about the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For he received honour and glory from God the Father when the voice came to him from the majestic glory, saying, This is my Son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this voice that came from heaven when we were with him on the sacred mountain. This is my son whom I love. Listen to him. And friends, that's what God is saying to us today. Listen to him. The very same voice that spoke that day still speaks today. He speaks through his word and by the power of his Holy Spirit. He speaks to your heart and he speaks to your mind. Listen to him. Well, in verse 9, Mark now takes us, brings us down from the mountaintop experience to the troubled world below. And if I take you back to Raphael's painting, just as he shows in that bottom section of the painting, and on the way down, Jesus tells his disciples to keep their experience to themselves until he has risen from the dead. Of course, they didn't have a clue what he was talking about, risen from the dead. They had had a glimpse of his glory. What did death and resurrection all have to do with the Son of Man, their Lord? What, what, was it, what were they on about? They also talked about the appearance of Elijah. And Jesus explained to them that a form of Elijah had come in John the Baptist who came heralding the kingdom of God in Jesus. Well, the three disciples, their feet had scarcely touched the ground. They had seen the divine son. They had witnessed the great giants of the Old Testament. They had heard the father's voice and suddenly they're on ground level and they're confronted with demonic power. What a contrast. Moments earlier they witnessed the glory of God and now they saw Satan at his best. They came down to this commotion. Then the other nine disciples, all surrounded by a large crowd, some teachers of the law, they're all arguing vehemently. Jesus said, what are you all on about? And a distraught man in the midst of the crowd came forward and he told Jesus about his son who had been demon-possessed since birth. The nine disciples couldn't drive out the demon. The demon tried to kill his son, throw him into the ground, throw him in the fire, throw him in the water. The boy foams at the mouth, gnashes his, feet, his teeth and becomes rigid. This kid was not just sick. Satan had entered him to distort and to destroy the image of God in man. And he chose a, a young boy. How pathetic is that? Well, the disciples had tried to drive the demon out. They had, didn't succeed. Jesus said, oh, unbelieving generation, how long shall I stay with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring the boy to me. Jesus was exasperated. And in his unique pastoral way, 
he spoke to the distressed father. And the father pleaded, if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. If you can, Jesus said, everything is possible for him who believes. Jesus is saying, it's not a question of whether I can do it or not, but it's a question of whether you can you believe that I can do it. Everything depends on your ability to believe, not on my ability to do it. And friends, Jesus is able to heal all spiritual diseases if only we have repentance and faith. And the boy was healed. He lay on the ground recuperating. The teachers of the law saw all this and they said smugly, smugly, <laughs> you heal him, all right, he's dead. But once again Jesus triumphed as he gently lifted the boy to his feet and he stood up. The disciples pulled Jesus aside. Why couldn't we do it? Well, Jesus' answer was simple. This kind can only come out by prayer. Here we have before us this pathetic sight on the, the ground level. The crowd milling around, the teachers of the law pointing the fingers at the nine disciples, the nine disciples trying to justify themselves, the boy writhing at the ground, on the ground, the father tearing his hair out, Satan at his best. That's the scene in a nutshell. Who was Jesus addressing, do you think, when exasperatedly he called them an unbelieving generation? Was it the father? Was it the disciples or the crowd, perhaps the teachers of the law? Well, it certainly wasn't the crowd. Teachers of the law? Well, maybe. Maybe as they were glorying, actually, in the disciples' failure. The father? I don't really believe so. After all, he called on Jesus. His very coming to the Son of God showed his faith. His faith was shaken, of course, by the disciples' failure. But he had faith. As soon as Jesus came to the mountain, he, he fronted him. No, Jesus would have been talking to the nine disciples. They had not bothered to bring the matter to God in prayer. Oh, they believed in healing. They'd done it many times. Jesus had sent them out. They'd done it before. No need to rely on God. This is pretty easy. We'll just go out and we can heal people. This one, this one over here. But their lack of prayer demonstrated that they were trusting in themselves and not God. And I wonder, I wonder if that might apply to us today. Does this simple castigation by Jesus apply to us today? Do we individually and as a church come to the Lord in prayer? Do we, or is it just a ritualistic type thing? Do we, do we pray for each other? Do we pray for our district? Do we pray for our families? Do we pray for our leaders? Do we come earnestly in prayer? Now, it doesn't mean that you have to get by your bed and bow down behind, behind your bed. You can pray as you're waiting in the checkout line at Woolworths or Coles. You can pray as you're walking down the street. You can pray at any time. As the Apostle Paul says, we must have an attitude of prayer. And in specific instances, it's important for us to pray. The father had faith. Sure, it was shaken. 
He said, I believe, but help me overcome my unbelief. But he knew Jesus would heal his son, and he did. In the final few verses, we read of Jesus and all his disciples leaving for Jerusalem. His public ministry was over. He wanted to concentrate on teaching the twelve. And it's interesting to note that in his words to them as they left, as they departed from that scene, the inference of the certainty, certainty of his coming death and resurrection. Beforehand, before they went up the mountain, as we read in chapter 8, he talked about the necessity of his death and resurrection. But now he's saying the certainty of it. This is going to happen. And he said, I'll be handed over to the hands of men. But of course, knowing, knowing full well that this will happen by the will of God. The disciples still didn't understand. They believed in the resurrection, the general resurrection of the dead. But surely this wouldn't apply to the Lord. They were afraid to ask him about it. Maybe, maybe they felt if they got more details, it would have been more painful for them. Well, friends, this morning, you'll notice in your outline, which I hope perhaps you've been following and you can look at this afternoon or during the week, there are some questions we need to ask ourselves. Have you received a glimpse of the glory of God this morning? A glimpse in your heart? Have you been reminded to heed the Father's words and Listen to Jesus. Listen to him from his word and by his spirit. Do you really, really, truly believe that Jesus died on that Calvary cross for your sins and he rose again for your justification? Do you really believe that? Do you take hold of that glorious truth? Do you believe if we repent and have faith that Jesus is able to heal every spiritual disease. And finally, are we a people of prayer? Do we acknowledge our total dependence on our gracious God? They're good questions and they're questions that each of us should ask ourselves. To God be all the glory. Amen.